Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Bader at the Centre for Global Development in Europe. My guest today is Bob Geldof, the singer, songwriter, author and anti-poverty campaigner. In this podcast, Bob talks about his current work promoting investment and jobs in Africa through a private equity company. And we look back at Band Aid, Live Aid and the Glen Eagles Summit. Bob addresses with characteristic robustness those critics who say that Band-Aid focused too much on Africa's problems and those who say that charity is not enough. This podcast is the full-length interview with Bob Geldof. But I do realise that not everyone wants to listen to an hour and a quarter of me and Bob Geldof reminiscing about Ethiopia or about Make Poverty History. So you do have the option of switching right now to a shorter half-hour podcast containing the highlights from this interview. It's available as a separate Development Drums podcast. Bob Geldof became famous as the lead singer of the Irish rock band The Boomtown Rats in the late 1970s and 1980s, and he starred in Pink Floyd's 1982 film The Wall. But it's as an anti-poverty campaigner that he'll be best known to listeners of this podcast. In 1984, he and mid brought together a group of musicians under the name Band-Aid, which recorded a hit single, Do They Know It's Christmas?, to raise money for famine relief in Ethiopia. They went on to organise the Live Aid concerts in 1985. Since then, Bob Geldof has remained closely involved in campaigning against poverty. I met him in London to talk about his work. Bob Geldof, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Thanks, Owen. So you're a regular visitor to Africa, and Mm. I've heard you talk recently with a certain passion about Africa today Mm. as being very different from Africa of 25 years ago. Tell us what you're seeing and how you see Africa now. Well, I don't see any difference in the dynamism of the people. It's just that it's been able to be realised, and that's the excitement, really. Um, If you're engaged in sort of humanitarian stuff, the excitement, if that's the correct word, is um, being able people to stay alive and advance perhaps the um, the lives of their children um, through better health or education or stuff. Uh, today, it's almost like in the, in the time that I've been doing it, those children are of age and now there's something else. So I remember speaking to a, an Ethiopian father up in the Highlands and saying, why don't you send the boy to school? And um, he said, what for? And I said, um, so he can learn. He said, what for? And I said, so he can be educated and, you know, develop himself as a human and get a job. And he said, what job? Where? And that's less tricky a question to answer today. And that becomes very exciting then for the possibility of that same child. So you're seeing jobs and economic growth across Africa is this just not across it but um, it's it has a critical mass now you would see it in spots Mm -hmm. and inevitably it'd be the resource spots the commodity spots the extractive spots Um, but you're seeing now sort of critical mass occurring regionally and of course when we talk regionally in Africa uh, and I know people listening to this are development buffs but just bear in mind because you forget when you talk regionally you are talking about vast spaces of the earth you know I mean just the horn is basically the size of India and so when you say regionally I mean it's big stuff and how much of it is driven by extractives and how much of it is other kinds of business the figures are five percent uh, sorry, 25% continentally. But if you take a very coherent right now um, political and societal culture like Ghana, um, 
you're seeing full democracy um, mm. where elections are touch and go, you know, um, and yet there's peaceful transitions, uh, uh, completely free press. Um, but you're also seeing massive growth of 13% per annum. Um, 5% of that at the moment is extractives. And very cleverly, um, they've asked the Norwegians to help them, um, you know, handle this, this new boon in, in extractives that they found. So um, that's repeated in a couple of places. But in general, I mean, the, I think the key figure is continentally growth of 6 to 7%, but only 25% of that is extractive. So you're seeing massive proper growth proper across growth. The, the, the general width of the economy. And you're involved in this organisation, Eight Miles. Mm, it's not an organisation, it's a company. It's a company, mm. OK. And what does it do? It's um, it's a private equity company um, investing in Africa. So here are the PE riffs that you don't know. It's pansectoral and opportunistic, which means that it's uh, all of Africa can be taken into account if there's an opportunity. Um, and it's pansectoral, which means it's not just telecommunications or agribusiness or something. What it isn't is extractives. We won't do extractives, mainly because it's messy. And um, anyway, there's far bigger fish in there than us. Um, but there's no need to get engaged in that anyway, um, because it's the other sectors that uh, require development. And, it, and it's in the other sectors where you get jobs. And that's what interests me next. And sort of if you want Bob's big adventure in Africa, the next part is jobs. If you'd said that to me in 1985, I would have looked at you like you were mad. And to what extent do you think this is going to replace over time the need for us to be giving aid and other kinds of concessional money to Africa? Over time it will completely replace it, but right now the two are absolutely critical and you couldn't have got to this point without aid and you won't get further without aid. Aid is the best spend. Explain how that connection works. Okay, well, how if you want to look across the field, charity which development people don't like talking about, but in fact they're dependent on it almost entirely. Um, They like to use words like philanthropy, like philanthropist. No, but charity is singular and special um, because um, charity is a human being in Barnsley, Hull, you know, some small town in Germany or Sweden or the United States or wherever, um, seeing another human being hurt and responding with, clear empathy across distance simply in response to another human being hurt and deciding that it won't be done in their name. And the most they can do for most people is put their hand in their pocket. And in these mm. crippling mm. times, that is, a, that is a serious most. Mm. And they put a pound or a buck or a euro or a whatever, a yen, into the charity box. Now, two things happen at that point. One is you get... Um, the vital, for me, human instinct to help another person. That's critical. But if a million people put that pound in that box, then you get a big political lobby. An individual putting the quid in the box, people say, that's nice. A million people, the politicians start going a bit wary about that. And if that million pounds is focused, not the money, but yes, obviously that has to go to the people, but the political lobby, that is potentially there. If that's focused in a political way, you have a huge um, uh, amount of influence. So 
what the charity, what the money will do is stabilize the individual or the family at a very basic level. So you putting your quid in will just keep that people, person going. What aid is supposed to do, people get confused about this, it's such a small amount in the overall scheme of things that all really it can enable societies to do is, is, is again, to cohere at a sort of community level of basic health, mm. basic agriculture, basic education. It also helps, and this is now increasingly important from my point of view, it helps to cohere governance. Because if governments can't function, and in the development world, as you know, that's called the capacity, the capacity to act, the mm. capacity to govern, if they can't do that, then nothing will happen in a country, absolutely nothing. If you can't pay the police, if you can't pay the army, then you will not have law. So there is no state. So what happens is that then people owe an allegiance to a supranational identity or a supra-intranational mm. identity that gives them benefits. So we have a very basic level of society just about scraping along. Between there and governance, you have this void. In that void is the economy. Generally, in African countries, you have massive companies at the very top, if they're, in, if they're there, like your Shell, like your Diageos, etc. They do give massive amounts of employment, but in terms of a country, negligible. Down at the very bottom, you've got mom-and-pop stores. They're not even SMEs, you know, small to medium enterprises, which are the lifeblood and dynamic of our economies. We will invest our lives into an idea, a project. People will put their houses, their families at stake. They'll borrow from banks just to get an idea. Out of the 100 SMEs that start, one will be our Diageo of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That doesn't pertain for me in Africa. I know there'll be development economists listening to this and going, that's ridiculous. I don't think so. Mm. You know, as you know, huge amounts of the continental economy are the informal economy. By that we mean not even your mom and pop stores, the woman selling oil from the olive jars in, in, in Nigeria on the mm. corner, street corner stuff. You can't expand out of that. It's survival. It's the, it's the urban equivalent of the, the rural farmer scratching at the soil and never being able to look up and use the creativity in his mind. There's no economy to grow into. SMEs have a chance in us because if you start a business tomorrow, there's a chance that I'll buy your stuff. Mm. That's not true in Africa. There's no economy to expand into. So SMEs don't really have traction. For me, the... You know, where it needs to grow is in that middle section of the economy that creates jobs and taxable income. Once the state can tax proper income, it can begin to cohere. It can pay its um, police, its courts, its army. It can begin to stabilise. And um, that, to me, is is really the game. Jobs that will have taxable income where the state can cohere. If you don't have that, then quite rightly, families will... Um, trust themselves uh, they'll then trust the tribe the clan and perhaps supranational identities like Islam or the Catholic Church or, or something else so, and 8 Miles is investing in businesses in, in that gap? In, in that gap in I that mean gap. typically what? a 15 to 25 million pound investment um, and there are a number of those companies beginning to get traction now and for me as I say the thing is where where can you you know, invest in a, in a local national company that, um, you know, will create even further jobs, um, but also, you know, with proper labour laws, not just national but international labour standards, as we've seen from the Chinese, to go in there arrogantly 
and behaviours you do at home is a, is a no-brainer. Well, we know that from our own past mm. in Africa. The Chinese are learning fast, but they don't generally behave all that well. And um, what, what examples structures. are there of... Uh, have you got any investments up and running yet, or is this still... Um, you're still identifying the opportunities? In fact, I've just come from a, uh, a management meeting of, of 8 Miles, and uh, we're looking at investing now. So that all these things take forever. Right. Bloody hell. But, I mean, it's other people's money. So, I mean, how PE works is that a group of experts, I put it together with um, a friend of mine in this office, in fact, and um, we're not PE experts, but I just thought that's the last thing I can do. What I'm able to do is, if you take Live Aid, Live Aid could have been the Boomtown Rats for 17 hours, but that would have been even a little much for me, and nobody would have watched. So you need to get together best in class, and everyone watches. Um, For the Commission for Africa, there's no use me summoning the world leaders to, to London. They won't come. But if you can get Tony Blair to invite them and lay out a year-long programme to empirically analyse why Africa remained outside the global economic common wheel, then they'll do it. Um, So the last part is, I keep noticing that African business is beginning to have traction. How do you... How do you get people? I mean, I'm sick of talking about it. I'm sick of going to conferences saying, look, go down there. That's your job. Like, if you're investment managers and you're responsible for other people's money, your job is to find opportunities. Go there. I got sick of it. And I just said, all right, well, let's try it ourselves. And um, you get people who are literally experts. They're PE people. Or in dust, people who've run businesses in Africa, big business, and you gather them together and say, will you do this with us? And with that credibility, you then go to big asset management people, people who've got a lot of money, and say, look, you know, you're all over China. China is all over Africa. What's the logic? You go to the Americans and say, how can you ignore this when China and India mm-hmm. are everywhere? Mm-hmm. You go to the Europeans and you say, listen, where do you think you're going to export out of this mess? To China, where you're begging on your knees to be part of the most autocratic society? It's eight miles south of here. Eight miles. Europe has always been involved in Africa for thousands of years. It's eight miles. You're going to go there. So let, let us take you there. I mean, not Geldof, but the people we have in the company. So that's how it works. They put money into you that they've got spare, and you use expertise to invest it wisely for them, but at the same time, hopefully, creating businesses and jobs, but using environmental, sustainable um, standards, labor standards that are appropriate to ourselves. So we're going to come back to Africa today, to development policy today, but I, I want to... Um, go back as yeah. you've been talking about Band Aid and Live Aid, mm. and just I mean you you know you you became famous for your engagement in Ethiopia when yeah. you put together as you say this uh, well originally the the record. Mm. Um, looking back, was that was that un- the right thing to do? W- w- is there something you would have done differently if you'd known then what you know now? No, um, I'd have done exactly the same. Um, because it's very hard, I'm sure, for people. Uh, I'm old now, but 84 was 30 years ago, nearly 28 years ago. Um, it's a lifetime away. Um, so the only awareness of Africa was Save the Children, Oxfam, mm. the usual, you know, coup d'etat, etc. And uh, that was, if it was ever uh, addressed by the media, it was in that context. Mm. 
Um, and so in that context, you know, when I saw the uh, report, uh, Michael Burke's BBC report, um, it was a response to that probably, as I've said a million times, to do with um, the season of the year, mm. uh, the fact of my own personal situation at home, the first, the fact of, you know, my career situation, which meant I was at home. I mean, if you're a happening band, you just simply aren't at home. You've got, mm. you're, you know, the market is the world sort of thing. So you're out there doing whatever, recording, uh, playing, uh, interviews, whatever. I was at home. And uh, so possibly all of that, anyway, but mainly, mainly the fact is it was sickening. I mean, that's the truth. If it came on now, I doubt if there'd be even the slightest change in people's reaction to it. So if people would respond the same today as they did in 84, why would I respond any differently? And so all I could do was what I knew what to do, write tunes. And being unsure about my ability now at this point in my career, I, uh, I got my friend who had just had a big hit, um, Vienna, with Ultravox. And... Um, and using the 10 years in rock and roll where, you know, we were top dogs for amongst with the others, I called up friends. Again, like, again, it's that thing I said that the Rats doing a Christmas record, it may have dribbled I'd, in. I'd have bought it. But. I know, <laughs> you know, you, are, you were our only fan. <laughs> but, you know, it, you know, our time had gone. There were new kids on the block mm. with something different to say in the Thatcher era. It responded to you know, the punks dressing down to represent their period and tearing up stuff and, you know, patching uh, patching the, the, the flag together with pins and, and uh, safety pins and band-aids and stuff was an exact replica of, though I don't think they quite, I don't think any of us quite understood, but exact replica of the country at the time, falling apart, basically stuck together. Mm. And... The new crowd, the Durands and the Spandaus and the Ultravoxes, were um, blinged out, you mm. know. I mm. mean, the music was occasionally critical and that, but it was Let's Dance. Mm. And uh, so they were the people I knew. They were having hits. I was doing this John Lennon-esque, Dylan-esque message song. I don't like them, but uh, specifically I set out with a Give Peace a Chance or Happy mm. Christmas War is Over idea in my head. So feed the world. Um, But if you'd asked me if 30 years later, one, I'd be still doing it. um, And feed the world, Bob, um, it's Africa that's going to do that, which it is. Africa having 60% of the last remaining arable land on the planet. It will be Africa that feeds the world, which is extraordinary uh, change in fortunes. What do you say to people who accuse... Uh, not just you, but that period of perpetuating an image of Africa, the, the begging bowl image, and you know the needy, uh, the, you know the, the, the kid with flies in his eyes. Mm. Um, there are people who say, well, you know these celebrities, these campaigns. They, I mean, they would probably bracket you with Save the Children and Oxfam and so mm. on as people who were concerned to raise money for a good motive, mm. but in so doing, created an image of Africa that makes it harder, for example, for people to do what you're doing now, which is raising investment, seeing Africa as a business opportunity? Oh, well, they're, they're, they're chronically naive. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I can understand Africans getting miffed about it because they're proud of their country or continent and, 
they're bedeviled by the fact that when they speak to people, people always say, oh, God, you come from there, you poor thing, is it not awful, you know? And um, so you could understand it. But the truth is, that was the reality. Right. And it's still the reality, disgracefully. And I still get... Um, well, if you remember from that period, it was anger mm. and shame. Mm. And that was good because that seemed to be what people felt who saw that program. So that program was the time of the um, uh, monomedia, if you like. Everyone watched the 6 o'clock news mm. on ITV or BBC. That was it. That was your choice. And most people watched the news on BBC. Uh, so I sort of forgot that the whole country saw it. So... Um, blame the bloody BBC or Michael Burke for discovering, just stumbling into these 350,000 people in Quorum, and God bless him mm. for understanding what this was. And if you, I remember perfectly the sound of his voice, his rage. Mm. Forget this journalistic um, objectivity. Forget Mo Amin not zeroing in on this, this, this horror. Well done them. And, um, and at this point, you had never been to Africa? You'd, no, you'd no, never I'd never. Been. But, I mean, I'd done stuff. And, you know, I started anti-apartheid th- when I was 13 in Dublin, right. South right. Dublin, with my mate Mick Foley. Um, mainly because um, I'm a 20th century, uh, sorry, it's 1960s kid. I, you know, right. I, I'm not, I wasn't, a, you know, I'm a child... Uh, I was a child in the 1960s, but I'm not a child of the 60s, and there's a difference. Um, But what informed me entirely in Ireland um, was rock and roll, as everyone everyone did. And this was, you know, I wasn't doing well at school. Um, I sort of was bringing myself up because my mum was dead. My dad sold towels around the countryside, so he was only there on on Friday and Saturday. Uh, My sisters, uh, one got married and the other was the family SWAT so she stayed in school until late so I I was sort of bringing myself up and it was crap and um, suddenly into this comes 1963 um, and here these boys and girls uh, talking of other possibilities Mm. other universes you know of possibility Um, and they were giving you the you know they were talking about the necessity of um, you know, change and mm. uh, its inevitability, and they were giving you the the rhetoric for that change, and they were saying that this is the platform. This in itself, this rock and roll thing, is the platform for change. So Jagger, Lennon, Dylan, etc., uh, Townsend. That was what was going on. That's what I got. I was always a lyric guy, and um, and because of them, I started listening to the blues because they told me to. And it gelled with the books I was reading. I was reading Steinbeck, and I had pleurisy at 11, so I read Dickens because I was in bed for ages. There was nothing else to bloody read, and we didn't have telly. So Steinbeck and... You said in your autobiography that this period, as you were raising yourself, if you like, was was where you learned to speak, to to tell over-educated, powerful people to bugger off, that this this gave you a kind of self-confidence. No, it didn't. I mean, if that's what you got from it, it didn't. I mean, you know, you're, you're in school... Um, there's no um, answering back to authority. You just got beaten every day, in fact. But um, but what did happen was you learned not to trust authority, and that was not to do with the school. You know, this is my cockamamie theory, so forgive me. Um, you know, it, the polar centre of the child's world, as we know, is the parent. If that polar centre abandons ship, in the mother's case, by dying... 
and in the father's case, because of the necessity of his job. But a kid doesn't care about that. They're just not there. So why? So how does he learn about authority? And when he bumps into authority in the form of priests or whatever, why should he trust them any more than the other lot? They're all going to bail. And Or if you bump into it in the form of the team captain at school, that's when you just turn around because he's a contemporary. And you just have to fuck off, you know, like go there. No, why? You know, explain to me why and then possibly. So all that happens and it's not good news. Um, and uh, so... You know, reading, I, I, I can't remember why, I think because of Dylan, reading about Dylan, I read that he read James Baldwin. So I started reading Baldwin and I started learning about feeling, because he's a great writer about mm. Africa, South Africa. And um, uh, and then, I, you know, the rugby team were coming and, you know, I was into CND and I wasn't so much convinced by the CND argument, like if they were... If they had a gun up, if they had a nuclear bomb up my arse, I wanted one up theirs. I mean, I was pretty clear mm, about mm. that, but I liked the symbol. And um, But anti-apartheid struck me as being absolutely, I mean, really, like, ludicrous. I right. couldn't get my head around the fact that you would have an entire system based on the fact that you're less because, as I say in speeches, because you're wearing a different jumper or you've got a beard or your skin colour is different. That literally struck me as palpable nonsense. I remember going over some passage a couple of times just to try and get my head around that concept. And, I, you know, we're so used to saying, oh, yes, it's terrible. But actually, think about it. It is preposterous. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all this was vivid to me. And it was the American civil rights stuff. And here was our kind of version of it in Ireland, coming home. And so myself and Foley said about organising protest parties and stuff. And then the next bit was I just stopped going home and started working with the homeless people in Dublin because all the books I've been reading, right. which seemed far away in California or in Chicago with Studs Terkel or in South Africa, were actually in Dublin on the streets. And it was much more interesting than school. So that sort of stuff was in my head. And when the rats started, I mean... It was a clear agenda. If you listen to the songs, they're all about that sort of stuff. So when I see Burke in 1984 on the BBC, it's not a million miles for a leap to say I'd respond to it. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, and my guest today is the anti-poverty campaigner Bob Geldof. The highlights of this interview are also available as a Development Drums podcast. If you enjoy Development Drums, you may also enjoy another podcast from the Centre for Global Development, the Global Prosperity Wonkcast, which is a snappier summary of some of our development policy work. You can subscribe to both Development Drums and the Global Prosperity Wonkcast on iTunes, or you can find them on our website at www.cgdev.org. The Guardian newspaper also has a monthly podcast on development. Looking back, um, the money that Band-Aid raised, um, the BBC made this accusation, which um, I think is worth getting on the table, that some of the money that was raised for the Ethiopian famine, not by Band-Aid, but by other people, Mm. was used in some way to finance or support the civil war and the armies on both sides. Mm. And when they made that allegation, they they, um, implied that uh, that Band-Aid money was connected with that. How confident are you that, A, that Band-Aid money was never um, siphoned off in the way they suggested, and B, that the other money that was raised uh, in, for Ethiopia was, was never siphoned off or abused? 
Well, I mean, I'm so confident um, of the fact that not a single cent of Band-Aid money went anywhere but to um, the intended recipients, so much so that um, uh, we were quite prepared to take the BBC on in the High Court. And remember, the trustees of Band-Aid, we spent, so far this year, we've spent £3,000 a day on recipients in Africa still, 28 mm. years later. Same trustees, incredible guys. Um, Where, uh, where's that money coming from? Uh, it, still? It's, it's still from DVDs or from covenanted wages okay. or from wills. Okay. Or, for example, last year, Glee, you know, the thing mm-hmm. they did, do they know it's Christmas? So instantly the downloads were huge. I mean, who'd have thought? Right. I mean, you know, I thought we'd make 100 grand and I'd get out of there, you know. I mean, 28 years later... We're spending more than ever I intended, you know, but great. And it is, it is the source of the greatest satisfaction, you know, because it's, it's tangible, this. Yeah. You know, you absolutely clearly improve that person's life. That clear, that's cool. Um, but uh, um, the BBC, like, we just wouldn't let it go. I mean, this is, this, this is the corollary of your thing about people um, think that you perpetuate the idea of Africa as, as on its knees. It was. Mm. And there are areas which are still um, endemic to uh, drought, um, war, um, and uh, the resulting chaos in people's lives. And so that will need to continue. But um, until such time as uh, things stabilise. But um, So it's not Bob Geldof perpetuating this thing it's Bob Geldof responding to it and because of that because of myself and Bono and stuff like that we get criticized then for doing it but if you saw the recent series the white poverty series I don't think it would have been a series or even a week of poverty had Bono and I not agreed to do the film that started it so you know we're in a we're stuck Mm. um and uh um the BBC and this goes to the whole mess that's in the BBC now, their journalistic standards, because of the web, because of the net, because a lot of what they're doing is now being done extra-curricular, if you like. Um, the panic in the tabloids is that they move to illegality and subverting, in fact, the state by bribing officials and, and things. So that's the tabloids. The BBC, though, dude, you're on whole other levels of, of credibility and journalistic rectitude. And... In amongst the BBC, the paragon of that must be the World Service. I've literally, literally sat in basements in Eastern Europe during the communist period and watched people tune in to the Romanian service, etc., to get the truth. I've seen rebels in Africa, different sides, tuning in to their World Service to get what they believe is the reality of the situation, to have the World Service use the showbiz bling of Band-Aid to draw attention to a problem that may or may not have existed was too much because the whole thing was sold on the fact that it was us involved. It wasn't. And, you know, the guy kind of makes it clear. And he could have spoke to me and he didn't. And so this whole mess happened and we went ballistic because a lot of people trusted us quite Mm. rightly and we've never betrayed that trust so the trustees went ballistic wrong crowd of people to take on they're hardcore one was the chairman of the bbc the controller of the bbc the chairman of itv and the chairman of channel four i you shouldn't take on 
the height of your profession. So the end result was, of course, they were wrong. It was a nonsense. It was a fabrication. And the BBC had to apologise to us uniquely, uniquely in its history, across all networks, all foreign networks, and on every news broadcast. Do you uh, think it did lasting damage? Do you think people... Do, you I don't know? think it did lasting damage to us, because, but it did some damage to them. I mean, to mm. the World Service in particular. I mean, I found out things I didn't know. I mean, the first thing they tried to say was, it's nothing to do with us because the Foreign Services con- or the, the, the World Service is controlled by the Foreign Office. That was news to me. I didn't mm. know that. So we had to sue the Foreign Office. But you can't sue the Foreign Office. So Mark Thompson was trying to push it off on them. Then I got a letter saying that this was robust journalism, to which we answered with pages of documents from the from the officials who were there at the time, the British ambassador, the American ambassador, the woman who's Barack Obama's African advisor, who was an independent monitor and who rode the Band-Aid trucks. You know, all these people, all these experts, you know, like Ken said, this is absolute nonsense now. With regard to the other people, I don't know and I can't speak for them. You know, I really can't. I, I didn't see it. You, did, there. you didn't see money being siphoned off? No, I didn't. And mm-hmm. like, um, So how it, how it couldn't work with Band-Aid is we had our own ships. Mm. I mean, the BBC filmed them endlessly. We had our own trucks. We had our own jeeps. And what really sickened me was that we had drivers killed during the war. I mean, you were in the middle mm-hmm. of the, the, war, the, mm-hmm. the longest-running mm-hmm. war of the mm-hmm. 20th century. We had our, dri- our drivers killed in our trucks trying to get food to them. So how does suddenly this stuff get to pay for arms? It was absolutely disgraceful. And uh, I can't answer for the others, you know, but, uh, you know, but I never saw anything like that. But maybe, who knows? Before we move on to uh, the future of development policy, let's mm. quickly touch on Make Poverty History in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, uh, I think, set the agenda pretty much for the Glen Eagle Summit, working with people like Tony Blair mm. and with officials in the government. Mm. And famously afterwards, you said that it had been a great success. Mm-hmm. Looking back, do you, do you feel that you might have um, overstated the success of 2005? Does mm. it? No. no. In fact, I think I, I, I couldn't have known then, but I probably understated it. Um, the turning point... The real turning point, or as Kofi Annan called it, the Rubicon crossing moment, was the Glen Eagle Summit. Um, that's, when, that's when I think, and I've actually written this recently, the world took Africa seriously for the very first time. The Commission for Africa is, I mean, for me it's a big thing. As I've said boringly, it's one of the very few things I'm proud of having been involved in. Um, but it did strip out. What needed to happen in Africa? Why did it remain outside the global economic well-being? Why? There must be a reason. This, these are empirical things. And it drilled down into this with very, very clever people. Now, Blair threw me the sop of culture. But culture is really important, as Amartya Sen you know, says, the Nobel economist. Like, you can't have development without culture. And I spoke to, um, who was it, Anthony, the guy who wrote the Brandt Report, so I sold it to Blair on... Uh, Brandt was wrong because it never... Brandt didn't work because it was never implemented. It was just shelved. We're going to go forward with this. And he agreed. And he said, well, I'll do the politics, you do the public. Okay. And um, so, you know, going through it on, on that section, I mean, I spent a year going around setting up, um, you know, different 
sort of forums in, in, in different countries and trawling through Africa. Very interesting. Anyway, I think it's a good report. And then... Um, but the other leaders didn't want to do any of its recommendations, double aid, cancel debt. They didn't want to do that. So something had to be done to force them. Now, um, Make Poverty History was already, I think that was Richard Curtis's um, overarching name for basically the cooperation of all the NGOs. I just can't, you know, I, I stay outside that loop because things happen very slowly with 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 all the NGOs. You know, like it's very bureaucratic, and it's, and I'm not, and it's sort of you know I get very impa- I'm chronically impatient to everyone's annoyance, and I'm also likely to say things that will embarrass them, and I don't want them to be embarrassed, and I'm also likely to disagree with them in public, uh, like you know. So that's it. I'm a pain for them and they're a pain for me so they'd organized make poverty history and um as it became clearer and clearer and clearer that this was no threat whatsoever to the leaders of uh, the ga none whatsoever they'd never heard of it they couldn't care less because in reality and i know adrian lovett who now works for one i mean he sort of agrees with me but the great thing about mph was that everyone believed it did exist and it did exist in this country, in Britain, which is consistently behind this agenda, almost to a person in this country. If you argue with them, they'd say, yeah, what the hell? And that's led to consistent uh, political policy, and the consistency of policy lends results, as we can see today. But back then, I just thought, you know, what's the focus of MPH? Where's its end object? And the end object was a march. I don't believe that. You can walk around Trafalgar Square singing, we shall overcome till you're blue in the face. You ain't going to do it. Where's the practice? Where do you bring real, um, terrible word, people power, public power to bear? You put a million people on the streets of a capital city. That's what you do on the day. So, you know, I really didn't want to do Live Aid because Live Aid was in people's minds... Not in mine, because I never really got that, but a very romantic moment. I mean, you know, that's there was this sense of the country acting as one, people as one. You know, at the Olympics this year, um, the Times said there's been three great unifying moments in the country. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, um, Live Aid, and the Olympics. Not bad. That isn't what I intended, but fantastic, you know. And... Um, uh, I didn't. I didn't think you could. You can't go back. Um, but Bono and Richard were insistent that we do it. By we, I meant I, because I said, "Well, you're so up on it, you do it." I said, "Oh man, I've got an album to do, and Richard had a film." He said, "Well, fuck off." You know what about me? Sort of because you know he's the megastar, I'm the pop singer, sort of thing, which is true. You know, and uh, so. Um, it, so you put together Live Eight, which was the concert. What, 25 years later? It was, but the thing is, it was substantially different, which is why it doesn't remain in people's minds. One, it was far bigger than Live Aid in terms, I think it had 1,100 artists. You try, you try getting that one together. Two, it was to be now with the uh, diffusion of the media, it was now to be in nine cities for the first time bringing Africa into the loop with, uh, with Mandela and Joburg. And, um, but you had to fill... Uh, you had to build public stages across the main thoroughfares in each city and fill it with local and international artists. 
and get a million people on the street. So that was sort of John Kennedy's job, really, to do that. And, um, but we had no money. But, but, the agi- but the agenda for 2005 was debt, aid and trade. Mm. And no, it wasn't. Was Again, it this, is a, this is a cardinal mistake. It was debt and aid. Trade, specifically, till Blair was blue in the face. It was never on the agenda. He said, if it's possible, I will bring it up, but it's not going to be possible because the Doha round is taking place in three weeks' time. I think it was Hong Kong or Singapore, and the leaders will not discuss trade when they're going on to do that there. It was debt and aid. That's your... It was debt and aid. So... Mainly then for you... This now, I'm was, not this saying that a... that was right. I mean, I would have put trade on the agenda, but unfortunately I wasn't chair of the G8. Well, that's where I want to take us now, is, is um, uh, this beyond what's known as the Beyond Aid agenda. I mean, to some... Well, let, me, let me just finish, because you can yeah. edit this as much as you like. So the point about MPH was, as I say, it didn't exist in Germany. It didn't exist in America. It didn't exist in France. Hence me doing funny things like saying, let's repeat Dunkirk. You know, do you remember that? Mm, mm. And so, like, the tabloids went ballistic, and I sat in a rowing boat somewhere at some port and said, yes, we're going to bring them all and let the kids out of school, and there was outrage. Get it going, you know. Right, right. Get the conversation, get them saying he's a twat, like what's in the pub, saying, yeah, great, you know, all the kids going, yet there had to be something to make the country alive to it. Mm. So that's what you do, and that's my job. It isn't the job of Save the Children Oxen. So this thing isn't, a pro- you know, this isn't their fault. It's just that that's what I do, and uh, I enjoy it. I like being um, disruptive. Right. So... Um, uh, that was fun for me, but actually doing Live Aid again, there had to be a pointed, concerted end to MPH. I know the MPH people say we had 250,000 people on the street in Edinburgh and you spoiled our, our protest. How did I spoil it? There, were, there was 250,000 people on the street. Not very many people cared about that, is the truth. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that Live Aid was great. It makes me sound arrogant, but this is the reality. And 250,000 people on the street will not change things. They allow you to vent, and they're one of the venting processes of democracy, and it's great, but it did not change things, okay? So if you want to engage, if you want to change things, you must engage with the agents of change. And the agents of change in our world are democratically elected politicians, whether you like it or not. That's where you engage. Now, Oxfam, Save the Children, the others constantly engage. In fact, the leaders of those charities now were the advisors to the government. But MPH, for it to work, had to have a coherent point over and above a march. And it had to have hoopla around it to make it appear that this was a vital thing. Now, a march of 200,000 people is a big march. But I'm sick of hearing, you spoiled it on us, we had a big march. I said to them, long before I remember the meeting, that, you know... We're going to do it on this day. So we have the march plan. I said, fine, then what's it, you know, at the concert, we'll urge people out onto the march. There was never a divergence of aims. It was a divergence of what was going to be effective. But I'm, I'm interested in how you balance being um, uh, disruptive, as you say, and being at the table with the agents of change, the democratic elected government. Because governments. you're disruptive with the agents of change. But it's hard to be both, isn't no. it? Because you don't get invited to the table if you're genuinely disruptive. I mean, did, did, you, did you ever feel a bit co-opted? That's a very good question. You get invited if you've got something to say, and you get invited if they can trust you. Um, and if they think you know what you're on about. And that's a really good question, because when you go in, look, 
1999, Bono called me and said, I'm bothered about this debt thing. And, you know, he hadn't called me for ages because um, he'd been busy making his career. Mm. And suddenly calls up. And Claire Short, the, the, the Labour Party just come into power, I think. And I don't know what year that was, 97? 97. And she called me up within a week and said, I want to focus on the debt thing. And I said, I don't think that'll work. It's this arcane, empirical, economic issue. I wouldn't know how to make it work. And then the Drop the Debt people brilliantly made it work. So going constantly, completely against what I said Mm. about, you know, (laughs) MPH. And Anne Pettifer in particular. Mm. And the crowd, Jamie Drummond and, you know, Lucy Matthews and and, and those people. And um, they made it work very well. I mean, they, they liked, you know, linking arms around Birmingham Town Hall. I mean, frankly, I never heard about it even when it happened. But, for the, you know, mm. and I don't think that worked either. But they began to break the chains of this thing. You know, I don't want to sound arrogant about this stuff. It's just that's the truth of it. And then when Bono called me up, he said, I want, let's do another record, another concert. I said, that won't work. Uh, he said, why not? So I went through why it wouldn't work in my view. And then he said, will you meet up with these people? So I did, and I really thought, they were, without being patron, massively impressive. Mm. You know, mm. I got excited and could see now that you could do this. But essentially, because Bono was now so hugely famous... Now is that what I always missed with Band Aid and Live Aid was, and what stung me was Paul Valley of the Times, mm. who was always writing about this issue. In fact, uh, electrified me, you know, along with Burke, right. because he wrote it so well, you could see it. He was one of the people who actually went to Ethiopia during the famine originally, yeah. wasn't he? Really and wrote gr- the story. A great yeah. writer. Yeah. And he stung me by saying, um, not stung me, but made me think, you know, as much as Geldof can do, he's never going to change it if he doesn't engage. And, but how? You know, here was this potential lobby of over a billion people for Live Aid and more joining every day. How do you cash that in? How do you bank that politically? So I spoke to Margaret Thatcher a couple of times, who was intellectually engaged with this, but didn't have much interest in it, mm. if you understand. Blair had started the Band-Aid Parliamentary Committee when he was a young man in Parliament and very much informed him in Brown's politics. Cameron and Osborne had the day off in Eton to watch Live Aid. So I hadn't quite realised the generational impact. So when Bono said, well, what what should we do um, with Lucy and Jamie and um, Zeta and Adrian and and Pet for the Drop the Deck crowd... Uh, I said, isn't it the best thing that we form a group that has access to power um, by formulating policy with very smart people, not my thing, but very smart people, young, dynamic, who've got a view on this. We can get it in there and inform these people who now watch Live Aid all day. So data started, which became one. Mm. And that, to me, is the best thing we've done of all of it. That, to me, is the singular best thing. It's not satisfying, unlike Band-Aid, but um, it does get a lot done. What what we haven't succeeded in doing yet is challenging some of the more um, systematic ways in which rich countries affect poor countries, the migration rules, the way our companies behave, the corruption, the 
you know, the, those kinds of issues. Yeah, but we're, doing, we're doing something kind of nice and pretty every, to, to raise some money. But that since day one. I mean, this is hard. Well, what progress have we made? What progress has the campaigning that you've done made on those issues? I I would argue a lot. I mean, you know, as we speak, uh, the Extractive Industries Transparency, Transparency International, started by Peter Eigen, and uh, he was chair of EITI. I mean, if you if you talk to Peter, I was with Peter two days ago in Geneva. If you talk to him and said that uh, the Dodd Frank Act, the Luger. Mm part of that um, was going to happen almost as he suggested should 25 years ago he'd have this is this is the requirement just so that people know that companies pub- publish, publish what, they pay, what they pay and on a project by project basis which is critical right. so institutionally you are literally affecting vast areas of the economy and if you do not publish what you pay on a project by project basis dude you can't list on the New York Stock Exchange, and all of these big extractive countries absolutely have to raise capital on London, New York, and Hong Kong. They have to. So Europe will follow suit, I've no doubt about it, and that's institutional change. In terms of banking secrecy, well, the economic crisis has revealed that. Now that's been stripped down. Um, in terms We've made of no progress thing, on the trade rules, really. In the there last hasn't. Years. I mean, but like, you know, Doha has been a bust. Hmm. And I don't know how many times I have to say it. And it becomes even, I mean, it doesn't matter whether I say it, but I'm just sick of saying it for, you know, since Doha, Monterey and all the rest of it. And until such time as we take down the CAP and the Farm Bill and all the onerous protectionist uh, treaties, I mean, you know, really the EU is a cartel. It's, a, it's a, You know, I mean, it is... Uh, protectionism of the end. I I want to push you on the idea that those issues, which you are rightly passionate about, somehow get crowded out by the image of um, we're going to raise some money through Make Poverty History or through Live Aid and so on, and we're going to give money to poor people. No, but that's wrong. Again, you're, you're, you're playing that trick. We raised money through Live Aid. Through Make Poverty History, we raised the issues. And so that's the key difference. Live Aid... We needed to get money instantly and to draw attention to the potential death of 30 million people. Now, dude, even now, if you ask me, Bob, number one, should we immediately start stripping down the institutions or should we instantly try and stop 30 million? Well, the first thing is to stop the 30 million. And so by by making this big hoo-ha, the powers move to try and prevent that. That's first. With the lobby created by Live Aid, you then go to try and push the political envelope. But it took 20 years, one for the issue to become the norm in political circles, a vital one. And then as globalisation happened anyway, through new media, then it became even more critical. So trade barriers began to fall in certain ways, but never against Africa. So why? What? So in 2003, you say, can you go through this and find out what, what is the logic behind this? That was the commission. Now we've come through that. Let's make it official G8 policy, starting with the first thing, doubling aid, and the second thing, institutionally, doing away with unpayable debt of the poorest countries. So you start, you begin to unpick gradually. You can't just say, ah, oh, this, that, and the other. You pick, unpick, unpick, unpick. And it will happen. And as Africa grows as a result, in my view of the G8 in in 2005, 
Doubling, cancellation of debt, critical. So we know the figures, how many children went to school after that, etc., etc. Doubling of aid, 62% of that was achieved. Is that important? Hugely important. Two other factors since 2005. Massive amounts of Chinese investment to power the globalised world into Africa. And fourthly, and most importantly, and critically, something that I think has bemused the community, so to speak, has been mobile connectivity. The distribution of mobile phones is the single greatest factor in the economic uh, takeoff of Africa. So once you add more aid occurring at, as I said, the very base level of society, are, are, are and um, being able to enlarge capacity uh, in African governments, married to huge inward investment from the Chinese, and can I say Britain, Britain's uh, foreign investment is 20 times that of Germany, 20 times, four times that of the United States. So Britain's in there competing. But you had this massive inward investment, stabilising a community, you began to get traction. And post-war, in Africa, this vast, again I come back to that, because you must understand, I know the, the development people do, but really understand it, 11 cities of no more than 100,000 people in Africa post-war. So the distances were so vast with no infrastructure that they couldn't trade. Now, with connectivity, you have virtual infrastructure. They began to talk, they began to trade, there was cash around. Governments where they were receiving capacity funding had an ability to, to manage this slightly. You began to get traction. So that's what's going on. And once you get economic traction and growth, you get the building of institutions, which will become more powerful. I mean, as we all know, and it's boring, negotiating these things for Africans is difficult. One capacity and two, the other side won't listen. They have all the power. But as the power moves, as the Irish says, as they begin to hop the ball, as they've got options, it's shifting. And when you have Walmart investing at 2.8 billion and you get PepsiCo setting up smoothie factories in Addis, you get shifts in institutions. So there's no use going in top-down saying the world systems have to change or else everything is useless. That's ridiculous. And frankly, it's very undergraduate. So we've now got uh, 2013. The UK once again takes the chair of the G8, mm. um, I think for the first time since 2005. Mm. If you were advising, as I'm sure you are, if you're advising people in number 10, what should the G8 focus on in 2013? I'm not advising because like, I, I can't advise. I'm not expert enough. What I will go in and, and say is there's the, there's the ability. You know, I mean, there's the, you know, if I saw these guys at the very beginning, there was no guidance. I, you know, I just bust these things. So I'd go and see a leader and I'd have a list of eight things. And I'd make sure that people know I was seeing an advisor. Mm. So post-live edits, rah, rah, rah. So the media are going to come. Five of them were impossible, but I wanted them. Two were viable but difficult. One was a certainty. They had to give me something. Okay? That, that sounds like big-headed, mm. please. It was nothing to do with me. It was to do with the profile and the fact the media were outside the door. And um, so you'd get something from all of these meetings. And that's the thing. You must get something from them. Or so what, else, what's the point? What's your list of eight for... Two, for, for I don't have a list of eight. Certainly the, the, the need now is to get the British government over the line with the 0.7 um, right. agreement. This will be 
historic. I mean, mm. genuinely, for people who are listening to this, you know, and maybe you've passed on already assuming that we're going to get the positive, but think about it. In the worst economic time, this government, of all governments, is holding their feet to the fire. We've got to get them over that line in the face of massive attacks from um, people who argue emotionally mm, mm. rather than practically. There is no question that for Britain, this consistency is the best use they've ever had of soft power. And the cost is utterly negligible. If you're thinking of building a couple of aircraft carriers, fine, that's cool. But in the modern world, what are they going to do for you? But in the modern world, the small pop of 0.7, which is what, uh, £1.30 is it per person? Well, sorry, 1p. It's, l- it's less than a penny for every pound yeah. of national income. So right. what do we get from it? Vast. We get huge. We get massive influence in the continent that will, by 2040, absolutely be amongst the polar economic places in the planet. There is just no question of that. Maybe before then. So you get a big say. Our business people, as I say, at 20% foreign direct investment, tw- sorry, 20 times more than Germany. Mm. This is great stuff for Britain. Not only that, it's what the British people decided to do on a long-haul crusade. And it's been, you know, part of our job and the others to keep everyone alerted to it. And frankly, most people go along with it still. So that's the first priority, to get to there. (coughs) That leadership, should it happen, will probably trigger a response from the others. So we've got to now make sure that it does. Um... We're going to try some, you know, bread and circus stuff. Um, there isn't much appetite for us in this current climate. I'm, you know, always sceptical of it anyway. You know, does it work? But, you know, holding arms around the Birmingham Town Hall seemed to have an effect. The March at Edinburgh, you know, people who took part in it, amazing. That's a lot of people. Um, the million people who showed out in the streets of Berlin and Paris and Rome and Philadelphia and London and Tokyo, etc. That worked. So, yeah, it does work. Um, we'll be pushing, obviously, for, uh, you know, the the extractive bills to go through Europe, mm. to stop Europe uh, cutting, let's say, the usual stuff. But what the overarching arguments about institutions and stuff... It follows from these because if you alter the stock exchange and you alter the institutions that are being built in Africa and really Africa needs institutions because you cannot get coherence in a state without the institutions. But you will not get institutions if the state is weak. Mm. Institutions often are organic unto themselves. The law takes place around what society is doing. And institutions form around that. Whether do you, it's the do you ever worry that, that foreign intervention undermines those institutions, that by providing aid in some way that we... No, because aid is too tiny for it to prevent it. Even in countries that are very highly aid-dependent, places like Rwanda and Ethiopia that receive a, a large proportion of aid? I, I would argue that but this, this aid dependency thing is a complete myth. You know, again, it's the naysayers. I mean, dependent on it, Rwanda? No. They take a body blow. But, I mean, you know, while they're trying to build um, 
you know, their institutions. And you could argue that Kagame has done a good job with Parliament, etc., etc. And you also have, you know, uh, what he's been messing around with in, in the Congo. So do you think it was the right decision for the British government to, yes, I do. to stop aid to Kagame? Yes, I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it isn't the end of the world. What is it, 27 million? Um, but it makes sure, I mean, you know, Britain has been a good friend. Um, but the thing is that, you know, is it is it right to interfere? No, but it's probably right to withdraw and, and mm-hmm. to show your displeasure and say, this can't be serious. You know, you've got to be serious about how can you argue for stability and institution building, which you've achieved. How can you, how can you argue for um, the state... Uh, the country overriding ethnic rivalries, which is true. Again, it's to my point, when the state can provide benefit over and above the immediacy of clan and tribe, then you get a loyalty to that. You see that constantly. You see it in our world. What about another country that we both know well and and love, Ethiopia, Mm. where we know that aid is being used well, but we also see worrying features about the way the government, for example, manages civil society? Mm. What do you have a? At what point should the British government think about um, suspending aid to Ethiopia? Um, what would they need to do? I think they've got to manage the country to an economic state where it's, it's not where the government feel confident. Whatever political system they so choose unto themselves, or the people decide mm. what political system they want. They feel confident enough that what's you know that they're less afraid of um, civil society. I mean, it goes so much against the grain of what the government want to do. It's it's this constant thing with Meles, um, this highly intellectual political brain, and yet he did the most preposterously naive things. Mm. I mean, it just didn't factor with you know, the person. And constantly you would argue against the detention of journalists or civic society or what's the problem with NGOs? You know, they're telling us what to, they're interfering in our country and stuff like that. There's too many of them. Yeah, but, you know, that's, a lot, that's diminishing returns. You know, were the country stable and economically growing, NGOs are no longer necessary, etc., etc. So you're constantly engaged in these arguments. You never get close. Or you get close enough so you can engage them openly. I mean, really openly, and all that that implies. But there are lots of people who worry that we, you know, while, while you have governments that are grappling with these things and sometimes coming up with what seem to us not only naive answers but really quite dangerous answers that we should not be giving aid to those countries. That, that Just as you say, we, you it agree that we on, It should. depends on how egregious it is. I mean, you know, I mean, there's such a double standard applied to Africa, as the Africans themselves constantly argue. We beg, we grovel towards the Chinese. You know, 13% GDP corruption. So people always ask about corruption. We're not Africa. giving them aid, right? Well, we were. We were, until a couple yeah. of years ago. We were giving India aid, and still are, until a mm. couple of months from now. Um, you know, and we have full diplomatic relations, and um, we, you know, here is an autocratic uh, society unto the nth, our government to the nth, you know, complete human rights deniers won't have it at all, utterly corrupt in their business practices, commercial laws, whatever they decide it is that day. We beg to get in. We say nothing. Why? Because it's in the interests of 
UK Limited or whatever it's called. Um, but the existence of double standards is not a reason to do the wrong thing. If if people, th- I mean, you, I'm as interested that you think it's a good idea to, to suspend aid to Rwanda. So yes, you, it do does th- suggest that there's some level at which you think we have, you know, the the obligation to send the right signal. Over, uh, it doesn't make any. You've got to remember to that it doesn't make any difference to them. They are not aid dependent. You know, who's aid dependent at the moment? If it doesn't make any difference to them, why are we giving them aid? Because they're not aid dependent, but they require aid. Okay. There's a huge difference. But no, what my worry is that if if the aid is making a difference and we've suspended it, then Mm. that must be doing somebody somewhere some harm. It is doing harm, but it's mainly doing harm to um, the ability of the government to function within that society in a coherent way that enables growth and development. Okay. And that, that is not a good thing. But the amount of aid we give at 27 million is not going to break the Rwandan bank, nor is it going to make them stop misbehaving in the Congo, where the, the upside of that is far greater than the 27 million we have. But, you know. This, some, this somewhat connects us to David Cameron's story of the golden thread this idea that there are certain institutions that every country needs to have if they're to be successful, thriving economies. Mm. And that's a, that's a, well, that's a good idea. I mean, I keep thinking of Rumpole's golden thread. Unfortunately, <laughs> when I when I hear of it, but uh, you know. But you're broadly sympathetic to this idea that we ought to be advocating for these kinds of institutions. To I to really think that the, the the lack of institutions is a huge problem. And to the World Development Movement's point, and I agree with them that the institutions we have, what's it, are purposefully set up to benefit us, even if we didn't specifically target weaker countries, though sometimes we specifically did, um, they have to be taken down, particularly given the current economic crisis we find ourselves in. It is only through trading, fair trade, that we equalise these things. So yes, institutions, I've just come back from the Africa Progress Panel. This is the Kofi Annan chaired Which was a function of the Commission for Africa, you know, yeah. that these things had to be monitored. And we spent a day listening to experts, and I don't even put that in inverted commas. I mean, their expertise is just fantastic, and you would think I'd be bored of this stuff now. But it isn't the twattery and the, you know, of, of some of the people we've mentioned. It's not going, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, no, this is crap, this is that. Shut up! I mean, we're talking about real serious mm-hmm. You know, in their expertise, and you listen to a day of this, and largely the talk was, you know, around the extractive industries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but it led instantly to the lack of institutions or to institution building, and all that they talked about in the end came down to, but how is any of this possible without leadership, without proper leadership? And there is such a dearth of it in Africa. And that is a result of lack of institutions. Mm. You know, if you have a disinterested civil service, one of the key institutions to just the capacity to manage a country, its growth, its development, its law service, where do you go? But if you can't pay the civil service, or as if there is a civil service beholden to one group in society, so even things as simple as this, but it isn't any use for one NGO, a think tank NGO, a theoretical NGO, to start going on and on unless you pull apart the thing. How do institutions get built? How can they get deconstructed so they don't do harm to the local people? All those things need to be looked at. Boring, time-consuming, but political. Not boring, I think. It will only happen 
if you engage at a certain level in politics, where you lay out policy, where you can unpick it and disentangle it and say, there's no downside to this. In fact, hey, look, it's upside. So even still today, the common agricultural policy, which was so egregious to the British in 1984-1985, was part of the killer in 84-85, and still is. You know, and still is a vital argument last week with the European budget. This has to be taken down. You know, so it is institutionalized. We are loath to take apart our institutions in equal proportion to how difficult it is to build them in poorer countries. But it is the function of all this. And if you talk about the last 28 years from a personal point of view, it is about that. It's about, you know, development and growth are a part, are, are part and parcel of um, institutionalization. Finishing up, you, you talked about the last 28 years from a personal point of view. Presumably you didn't imagine that this would be something you did for the next 28 years. No, you? it bores me to death. So why, what is it about, because a lot of other people who've got involved in celebrity pop songs and things have done their pop song and moved on, and you've stuck with it. What, what, what is it, what still draws you into this? Why are you still involved in this issue? Why haven't you just walked away? Because, um, because you can see things changing. Were it just futile, you just stop. I mean, you bang your head against a brick wall, eventually you, you've just got a mushy forehead, you know. But it turned out the brick wall is malleable. It was made of some other material. And so you push, you push, you articulate it. And that's the only advantage that we have. You articulate it. Speak truth unto power without question. Speak truth about power to those who need to be told about it. And so, you know, people say you're compromised. No, I'm not. I haven't once been compromised. I'll say exactly what I believe to whomever. And if you don't like it, cool. I mean, the common currency must be, oh, fucking get off from Terry, you work can. Yeah, he's a camp, but I'll be fair enough. You know, I mean, that's got to be it. Part of the job is to co- provoke arguments in the pub. I mean, literally people get bored of me saying, are they, how do we get them to talk, how do we get them involved in the pub? You get in a rowboat and you pretend you're going to row people over from millions of Germans and, and French are going to descend on Edinburgh. Of course they're not, but, you know, people laugh. and mm. So you get them talking, and it is that. It becomes vital. It goes into the home. I remember school aid. The issue was to get it into a kitchen. Get it into a kitchen so you see the connection between Hull and Harare. Get it in the kitchen. So that's it, and that's it. That's what we do, you know. We talk about it. We articulate, hopefully, sensibly arcane issues that only remain inside the sort of um, developmental vacuum. And within the developmental vacuum, it's to try and make the argument less than the echo chamber of your own prejudices. Bob Geldof, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Mm. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, from the Centre for Global Development in Europe. You can subscribe to Development Drums in iTunes, where you'll also find our sister podcast, the Global Prosperity Wantcast. Alternatively, you can play or download episodes of Development Drums from our website, developmentdrums.org. Finally, please visit our Facebook page 
to see which guests are coming up and to put your questions to them. And the feeling that it's hopeless Gets so huge it overwhelms But as we call through every hour So the days go round again Just the same But you know 